The Your Mark on the World show is made possible by our sponsors, including Gate Global Impact and Curtin McConkie. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. One and welcome to the Your Mark on the World show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe, and our guest today is Brent Andrewson from our sponsor, Curtin and McConkie. Brent, thank you very much for joining us today. It's exciting to have you back on the show. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks, Devin. Well, Brent, I think we've got a great topic to talk about today. I want to tap into your insights as uh, one of the you know leading attorneys in the community on uh, nonprofit law. I want to talk about how to make the process of setting up uh, a nonprofit easier. I think it's daunting for people uh, who often come at this with big hearts, big passion, and no legal experience, maybe little business experience. And the, the legal processes of establishing an entity and getting that tax status approved is really daunting. So I, I appreciate your willingness to take a few minutes and talk through this with us. So overall, what are the steps required to uh, set up and establish a nonprofit charity? So the first step is to decide what type of an entity you're going to use. Uh, People do have the best of intentions and will sometimes get going. They'll get a group of people together and start operating and, and maybe even in some cases we've seen start collecting money or pooling money. You know, whether that's a type of entity or not, there's such thing as unincorporated associations, but we tend to stay away from those. So when someone says, I want to form a nonprofit, we say, well, what kind of an entity do you want to use? And we usually uh, suggest one of two organizational forms. The first is the nonprofit corporation, which is my preferred type of nonprofit structure. The other is a charitable trust. Uh, charitable trusts are, aren't really a legal, they, they have some legal structure to them, but they're not an incorporated type of form. You don't register with the state, for instance, but with a nonprofit corporation, you would. So we start there. What type of entity makes sense? We recommend a nonprofit corporation and then we walk them through the steps to form a nonprofit corporation. Okay. So let's talk a little bit. So that's step one. So step two is to uh, get your uh, IRS approval, right? For your yes. tax exempt status. Absolutely. So it's interesting. Most people kind of conflate those two things. When we talk nonprofits, most of us, and you and I, who have a lot of experience with nonprofits, do the same thing. We say nonprofit, and what we really often are talking about are charities, which have a specific type of tax-exempt status. Uh, they're exempt under Section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code. There's a whole host of other C types of entities that are all tax-exempt uh, um, classifications under the tax laws, and most of the entities that operate under those laws also are nonprofits. If you live in a, in a condo um, or someplace that has a homeowners association or a condos association, that's probably a nonprofit corporation. But when you say nonprofit, we're not thinking of that. So when we do talk about charities, in order to be classified as a charitable organization, the IRS has to deem you as such. And the way you do that is filing, you have to file an application with the IRS where you have to show them that you are both organized and operated 
for charitable purposes. The organization piece takes us back to that nonprofit structure you've put in place. Uh, if you'd so, like, I can walk through that basic uh, planning. Let's go through it here a little bit, Brent. The the uh, let's let's go back to step one and talk about some of the particulars. I think the three biggest pieces are probably articles of incorporation, uh, bylaws, and the establishment of a board. Uh, Absolutely. Let's go through each of those quickly, Brent. Walk us through those three things and tell us how we go about doing those and what they are, because. I'm sure most of us can't tell you what uh, articles of incorporation are and how they differ from bylaws. Uh, we have some vague idea of what a board is, but tell us what's required, uh, okay? You bet. So articles of incorporation, it's its like a, a charter. It says we are forming this entity and would like to be recognized as a nonprofit corporation with the state. So you file your articles of incorporation with the state where the entity is being set up. So here in Utah, you file that with the Division of Corporations. And the articles lay out some important things. First of all, they say, we are going to operate as a nonprofit corporation. We want this entity to have corporate existence, meaning it is a standalone entity. It can be sued. It can sue. It, as an institution, can enter into contracts. All those basic organizational issues are part of the articles of incorporation. You establish that there's an address a name, a registered agent, meaning someone who people can look to for purposes of mailing correspondence, serving notice of lawsuits, those sorts of things. Often, but it's not required, but you will usually set forth who your initial board of directors is in that initial articles of incorporation. You don't have to. So if you don't have your board selected yet or in place, you could certainly have that be done later, but it's often a good idea to go ahead and get it done when you can. Another important thing to do with Articles of Corporation, the actually the state has, most states have a standard form with, with the basic bare bones minimum information required that you can fill out and submit. One of the most common mistakes we see made is people, when they want to form a nonprofit corporation, they go to the state. They go to the Division of Consumer Protection's website. They pull off that basic form. They fill it out and submit it and get their nonprofit corporation set up. Because it is a two-step process to become a charity, the nonprofit corporation, the organization, has to also be done consistent with not just state law, but also that 501c3 law. So one of the most common things we do is file amended and restated articles incorporation because in those articles you have to adopt certain things, certain provisions that are required by the IRS or by the Internal Revenue Code to be a charity. For instance, you have to state that you are organized and will operate exclusively for Section 501c3 purposes. You have to state that upon dissolution you will distribute all of your assets to other charities if you go out of business. So a lot of the templates are, that people would see for setting up a corporation would not be specific to a nonprofit and certainly not to their particular purpose. That, is that the limitation or the challenge that people run into? Yes. The, the basic state form at most, in most states is set up for any type of nonprofit corporation. Uh, 
some people even set up nonprofit corporations because they like the basic structure, but then they file a tax return like they're and they're taxed like they're a for-profit corporation. So the form is designed to deal with just the bare minimum. And so if you want to be a 501c3 charity charitable nonprofit, then you have to do certain things. So that's the first step. You 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 get good articles filed, whether you have a, um, named your board or not. If you have, then the next step usually is the board gets together and adopts a set of bylaws. Articles are very brief. We try to keep them as brief as possible and only include those provisions that are absolutely necessary from a state law and a tax standpoint. So bylaws is where you can... The articles are usually like one or two pages, right? Correct. Bylaws might end up being 7, 10, 12 pages because they lay out the way the organization will actually operate. The board of directors, for instance, usually is the governing body. It needs to have meetings. You need to decide how to elect new board members, how board members can be removed if they need to be removed, how they can be replaced if they need to be replaced. The rules of protocol for the board aren't always fully laid out, but there might be a reference to following Robert's rules of order for purposes of your your board meetings. Um, Certainly, they lay out that each board member has votes, those sorts of things. So, the board gets together, adopts the bylaws. We usually recommend they adopt a conflict of interest policy as part of their organizational setup. And they also would uh, elect officers. We recommend that there be some state laws require a, a certain number of, of officers. A president and a secretary, for instance, was required under Ohio law where I first practiced. Utah doesn't have a formal requirement. But we usually recommend that there be at least a president and a secretary or secretary slash treasurer of the organization. And so all that gets taken care of by the board. And that organizational piece, that first part of the setup is relatively easy as long as everyone has gotten together. Usually they've had some pretty good discussions about what they want to get set up, who will be on the board. And so finishing out the the articles, bylaws, and other simple organizational pieces are at the front end is pretty easy. Fantastic. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the composition of the board. What do you, what should people look for in those first two or three board members? Presumably, the founder can serve on the board. Who else do you look to for good, good board members? That's a great question. It's probably one of the most common questions I get asked. And what I tell people is pick those board members who you have confidence in and uh, in whom you, you can trust. You want Two things. It's it's almost uh, I almost give the same answer when somebody asks about who should be a trustee of a trust. The idea is you want to have people who are you can implicitly trust to carry out their responsibilities if they take on certain responsibilities, and each board member takes on some responsibilities. And you also have they have to have a certain level of competence. Again, going to that application for exemption, which we'll talk about in a minute. One of the things the IRS asks is for a sufficient biographical information about each board member so that the IRS can see that these are competent enough people to serve on a board. Uh, The board's responsibilities involve overseeing the organization and making sure that that mission and vision, even if there is a founder with a deep and profound vision who is the heart of the organization, it really does take more than one person to get something off the ground. And so I recommend that uh, that the board be uh, or comprise people who would share that vision and also would help support the founder 
in whatever way the founder needs. Is it customary to require your board members to be donors or to ask them to be donors? I would say the larger the organization, the more common that is because it shows some skin in the game. Financial and time commitment are important to organizations. And most boards don't require a substantial contribution from their board members. And in fact, I think that would be an impediment uh, in some, and in, in often if they required too significant of a contribution from their board members. Because what you really are hoping you get from your board is the support of, of their time and their ideas, and then also their networks, reaching out to their family and friends, not just for donations, but also for the support of the cause, the organization in which the organization is engaged. Fantastic. Well, Brent, let's talk about this step two, the, the application to the IRS. This is, it seems to me, the harder and um, more challenging part, especially for the social entrepreneur who's trying to set up a nonprofit. Uh, this may be the more daunting process for which there is less of a template, less of a pattern to borrow from. What is the, what does the application look like and how do people complete it? Great questions. And, and it is a little daunting. I remember as a, as a brand new lawyer, just before I actually became a lawyer, my father asked me for some help with one of these applications. And here I'd had a course on nonprofits and was studying for the bar exam. So I felt like I knew some, some things and I looked at that and said, Dad, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Fast forward a year, and I, after a year in practice where I started seeing what, what some common themes in filling these applications are and, and having been through it five or six or seven times, and, and I called him and said, Dad, actually, I can help you now. I know exactly what I'm doing. So it is, if you are brand new to it, it's, it's hard. The IRS tried to make it easier by creating a form 1023EZ. And let me step back. The application form for the IRS is IRS form 1023. They created this easy form in an attempt to try and make it easier for people to get off the ground. Now I'll tell you what my bias is and it's, it's to not use that form and I'll tell you why. The application is designed to show the IRS that the organization is both organized and will operate for charitable purposes. And it does so by asking a whole series of questions. You have to submit copies of all your organizational documents. So although you only file your articles of incorporation with the state that you're incorporated in, you have to give a copy of your bylaws. You give a copy of your conflict of interest policy. You don't have to give a copy of your minutes, but you disclose uh, who the officers are. They want to see what your organization looks like. I mentioned they ask questions about who your board members are, whether they're related to one another, whether or not they receive any compensation. So they ask all sorts of things to see what does this thing look like from an org organizational standpoint. But then the most important part, in my opinion, of the application is where they ask you Please give us a narrative description of the activities in which you're going to engage. That is missing in the IRS form 1023EZ. They just simply ask the charity to certify that they will in fact operate consistent with 501c3. It sounds great if you want to get something done really quickly, but it's not real good if the IRS comes back later. 
And so that's where filling out the full form and spending some time in that, that narrative description of activities is so important. The charity can lay out what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and we usually add an additional piece to that, an argument to the IRS why, in fact, what they're doing qualifies under Section 501c3. We usually yeah, find yeah. a revenue ruling or other rules. You rulings. have specifically suggested that people be specifically broad about yes. the language they use so that when or if the IRS does perform an audit to review whether the activities are uh, consistent with the 501c3 standard, that you get a pass. What do you mean by being specifically broad? Well, by that, you've got to give enough uh, specificity to the description that the IRS can actually uh, understand what you're trying to do. If you just simply say, well, we're going to give scholarships, that's way too broad. So if you say, we're going to give scholarships to uh, needy students and students who maybe merit a scholarship based on their performance, and we're going to focus on students from uh, lower uh, lower middle class to low income or poverty, uh, people in the poverty level, that's more specificity. And we might even go a, a layer further and say, and in giving scholarship awards, we'll come up with specific criteria. We've not yet done so, but we're going to come up with criteria. We're going to put those in a policy. We're going to put those in an application form. We'll have a scholarship committee that reviews those and we will make the awards and keep records based on who we make awards to from there. That's just one example of a specific type of activity and the level of detail we'll get into, but we don't tend to get into every level of detail. And here's our application and here's this exact um, thing we're gonna look at as to this piece. If you give too much specificity, one, it's overkill, and two, it could just cause the IRS to ask all sorts of additional questions that might be unnecessary. That's uh, it, and, it really is a challenge, and, and that really takes us to uh, the next point I wanted to clarify with you, and that is that this process sounds daunting, but there is a kind of a, a, a process that can make it both affordable and efficient, and that is to, you've suggested that, that you uh, use an attorney lightly, uh, that you, at a minimum, ask the attorney to give you some templates and forms, some coaching and direction up front, and then review your work on the end, right? Yes, I think that's a great idea. The, the first question I would ask your attorney is how many applications for exemptions has he or she filed and had approved? Because that will give you some indication whether or not the forms or templates or advice you're going to get will be helpful. Uh, we, we quoted what it might cost at one point because somebody wanted us just to do everything. I said, well, if you want us to do the whole package, here's the rough cost. They thought that was too much and ended up going to an attorney who gave them a much lower quote to help them, but had never filed an application for exemption. And they ended up getting a whole bunch of questions from the IRS and ultimately pieces of the structure they had intended, the IRS agent wouldn't allow. And it was principally because of how it was presented at the front end, which was very unfortunate. So yes, ask that question, who are they then? What I usually tend to do is say, look, if you've got a really, you know, let's talk about what your budget is and find a way that we can help you in the most cost efficient way. Because there's nothing worse for me as a nonprofit lawyer who loves nonprofits 
to have somebody come to me because they've ran, they ran into a problem by taking some shortcuts or not doing what was needed at the time. So yeah, getting templates. Uh, we've had lots say, look, we're just going to go ahead and try and get this structure. We'll send you copies of our articles, bylaws, conflict, and other organizational stuff. Just review them. Please tell us if they're okay. And then we're going to send you our application for exemption and, uh, and have you give us some comments on that. And I, I've found that that works fairly well. It's certainly better than doing it without any counsel from counsel, right? I think so. Again, you'll get different views from different people, but I do think the complexity of the tax law, unfortunately, merits the uh, need for both good accounting and good legal in this area. I've said it to you before, I believe, Devin, that this really is a regulated industry, and the primary regulator is the IRS, and you just don't want them showing up with questions you want them aware of what you're doing and pleased that you're doing it right. There is some irony that people tend to think of a nonprofit as being exempt. Uh, and, and what they're exempt from is tax, but that subjects them to greater regulation by the IRS because the IRS's job is to collect tax, right? Right. That's right. And because they operate with such favored status, they're granted other favored status under state laws. They can uh, accept contributions and people can make donations to them. And, and so there's, uh, there is a certain level of regulation that just merits making sure things are done right. And that's, that's why I prefer the 1023, the full 1023 application, because again, it allows the charity to lay out how they're going to do something because it's not uncommon. Uh, fortune doesn't happen a whole lot, but every once in a while, the IRS, either the rules change slightly, or maybe somebody didn't you know, pay as close attention to the application, and the IRS comes back and says, well, we really don't like this particular activity. We don't like how you're doing your scholarship program or, or what you're doing elsewhere. And the response you want to be is, well, okay, that's fine, but we laid this, what we're doing, you, you, you raised this specific concern here. That was in our application for exemption. So we can change what we're going to do going forward, but you're not allowed under the law to penalize this retroactively. And I've been part of app, uh, audits where the IRS is trying to impose penalties retroactively, and it's been a lot better for those charities to be able to point out to the IRS agent, the application form, the ones that have had trouble is where we can't highlight that anything was disclosed. And the IRS agent actually usually uses that as a club to beat the charity with. You didn't disclose this. You said you were going to do these three things and now you're doing these five things and we don't like that. So. Yeah. Well, Brent, there's a, um, uh, I think there's some meaningful things that we can talk about in terms of how people pay for the, the legal advice uh, to do this, because I think a lot of uh, new nonprofits are starting with the presumption that, A, I have no money and I don't have a nonprofit out. I can't take uh, do donations yet. Um, but if you are uh, applying for nonprofit status, there are a couple of ways that uh, donations can be accepted, right? That's correct. I mean, one common thing people do is they find a fiscal sponsor, a charity perhaps that is operating in a similar space as them or someplace like a community foundation where they can actually set up a fiscal sponsorship, have funds go there for the designated purpose of 
supporting this organization once it is approved. I also, once you have a state law entity in place, one of the organizational things we do also is get a tax ID number for the charity. And the charity then can open up a bank account and it can start operating. You know, once it's a, 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 an actual entity, it can conduct business. And the law works as long as you apply for tax exemption status within 27 months of organization, the, the tax exempt status is retroactive. So if I give a donation to a charity you set up today, Devin, here it being the toward the end of November of 2015, I'm going to want a tax deduction in 2015. I could still give your charity a gift today and you can get your tax status approved in the future and I can still take a deduction for this year. Um, now, again, some people aren't as comfortable doing that and want to see the fiscal sponsorship, but in fact, with the application pending, there's a uh, as there's a strong argument, as unless you have reason to believe the charity will not be granted its tax exempt status, which we would never register or apply if we thought that were going to be the case, then in fact, people can actually make contributions, take a tax deduction in 2015, even if it's April 20th that the charity finds out that is in fact approved. So it is a, uh, it's completely possible to take donations once you've set up the entity uh, in order to pay for the legal costs of setting up the entity and uh, doing the legal work on the uh, application with the IRS. Yes, and that happens quite frequently. And again, those founders are usually the ones who are putting in some of that seed funding, or maybe they have a primary sponsor who is, and that's that's what we see quite often. It's funding all those initial startup costs. And in this day and age, it's really easy, easy, maybe an exaggeration, but certainly most people can go out and raise $5,000 via a crowdfunding campaign to help pay for the costs of of establishing a nonprofit, right? I was just on Indiegogo last night just for fun and was looking at a number of the causes. And, uh, you know, five might be a little on the high end, but it seems like just about anybody, regardless of the cause, can raise at least $3,000. And, uh, you know, that's it's nice to see that people like good causes. But the better the cause, the easier it is for people to give. And yeah. a lot of fun to see. Well, Brent, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Before you go, tell us how people can get in touch with you to learn more about uh, your capabilities and how you can help them with their uh, launching a nonprofit. Well, the, there are several ways. Probably the best would be just to go to our firm's website, which is uh, kmclaw.com, uh, kmclaw.com, or you can call our main number, 801-328-3600. Fantastic. Brent, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. We wish you every success in your good work. It is always a pleasure, Devin. All righty. Let's do some good. Thanks, At the intersection of financial services and social media, Gate Global Impact, GGI, uses new market infrastructure to facilitate investments in organizations that deliver a societal, environmental, and or a cause-related benefit in addition to a financial return. 
Regardless of company size or business challenge, clients count on Curtin McConkie to solve problems, help realize opportunities, and provide high-caliber legal and business thinking without breaking their legal budgets. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devonthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devon is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.